Hello everybody, I'm John Offord, I'm a broadcaster based in the UK and welcome to Different Minds, a podcast series that looks at neurodiversity, the different ways our brains can work and interpret information. Today we're going to talk about bipolar disorder, which is quite appropriate given it's Men's Health Week this week. I'm delighted to be joined by a very special guest all the way from Norway today. David Sandem is a Swedish painter and printmaker, author of the memoir I'll Run Till the Sun Goes Down, and founder of Twitter Art Exhibit and the mental health speaker. David, welcome. Thank you. How is life in lockdown in Norway? It was very strict for about three months, and now they're easing restrictions just like all around the world, I think, that we have to kind of come out of our caves to be remain sane. But um, the numbers here are really good. I think last I saw, there were like 18 people in hospital in all the country, and we're at maybe 285 deaths or something like that. So Norway has done pretty well. Yeah, it's been strict and it's nice. We got summer now, you got nice weather and people are sort of a little relieved just to come out and breathe and meet some people in small groups. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And whereabouts do you live in, in Norway, David? So I live in Moss, which is a 45 minute train ride south of Oslo, uh, right by the Oslo Fjord. And oh, wow. it's sort of a harbor town, uh, ocean town. A lot of ferries go from here across the fjord to Horten, which is on the other side of the fjord. So a lot of traffic goes through here. So if oh. you're on a road trip in Norway, more than likely you'll, you'll end up here sometime. <laughs> Sounds beautiful. So yeah, I just wanted to talk today about bipolar mm -hmm. disorder and depression in general, really. And obviously, you have an interesting story to tell in terms of what you've accomplished mm -hmm. in your life so far in terms of art engagement. And obviously, you, you founded Twitter art exhibit, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And also, mm -hmm. you obviously published a book, I'll Run Till the Sun Goes Down, a memoir about depression and discovering art. So I just want to maybe start at the beginning and, and perhaps for the benefit of everyone listening, if you could just tell us a bit about what bipolar disorder actually is. Yeah, that's, that's a very broad question. And just like with depression or anxiety or anything within mental health, whether you talk about autism or, or you know, any spectrum, there's many different versions of this. So uh, it's not like it's clear cut that just because you're bipolar, everybody experiences it the same way. So I'll touch on that a little bit. But bipolar basically is that you don't have a constant uh, depressed state. Well, if you have clinical depression or something, it's a constant state where you're, you know, nothing changes. But with bipolar, you can experience uh, periods of euphoria almost where you're very creative. Uh, everything feels great. You, you know, your thoughts are just bombarded. <laughs> you know, you're just so creative. You, you don't sleep. You're just constantly engaged and and then it's followed by uh, a downturn it's like you hit hit a wall all of a sudden your body starts getting fatigued it's kind of natural when you think about it it's like burnout you you work really really hard you ignore yourself you push yourself and then you start getting a physical reaction uh, you might get chest pains back pain, stomach aches, and then you start getting anxious, more and more anxious. And, and then you very quickly fall into a very severe depressed, depressed state. Now, when you're bipolar, something I really want to say is that it's not a constant thing that you're either up or down. You can be in the middle of the tree, so to speak, uh, for years. You know, there are people who just have one uh, manic state in their whole life, you know, um, 
It could be also uh, minor swings, you know, that it's not extremely severe. So it's, it's, it's kind of hard. And then, of course, there's this uh, bipolar 1, bipolar 2, bi bipolar 2, A, B, C. <laughs> I mean, you go into bipolar 1, what separates that from bipolar 2 is that bipolar 2, uh, you don't enter into psychosis when you're either in a manic state or in the, the anxious state afterwards. You're fully aware constantly about what's going on. While bipolar one, you, you may actually enter psychosis when you're in these states and it's more severe. So not that bipolar two is any easier. Uh, it's really, really tough to be aware of your anxiety. Um, I've had different diagnoses. Uh, some doctors have said one, some have said two. And the latest that I read in my file was that it's unspecified. They can't really decide. So, but that maybe explain it. And the last thing I want to say is that there's one part of it called unipolar, where you're, you know, if this is the flat, you know, average, you might go up to the top and then just down and then up to the top and just down. You never have a manic state. Right. So those are sort of the, the different versions of bipolar um, disorder. Can you tell us a little bit about when you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder? I basically, and my book talks about this entire process. So if somebody's really interested in it, um, my, my memoir explains this in detail. But um, I basically suffered from burnout first, then entered depression, then entered clinical depression, started struggling a lot with anxiety. And this was around the year 2000, so we're talking a while ago. I wasn't diagnosed with bipolar until maybe 2006, 2007. Uh, so for a lot of years, it was unclear what was going on. And I don't think I was bipolar for the first time. And it's fairly common that bipolar develops in your late 20s, early 30s. So that fits my timeline fairly well. I'm 40 eight now. <laughs> I have to think. Years go by quick. So uh, there's also this part that's uh, personal. I didn't really accept that diagnosis. I didn't feel that it fit me for quite some time. I just saw creativity as something normal. I couldn't distinguish between myself and let's say a golfer who goes out and hit golf balls all day. I thought that was kind of crazy. You know, who does that? <laughs> you know, so I, I paint all the time and I write. And so to me, it was just normal that you have spurts of creativity. And it was really hard for me to separate those two. And also there's this sort of defeat talking about bipolar. I was very open to speak about depression and anxiety very early on, but very reluctant to bring bipolar into it. And I was actually kind of critiqued for that in my memoir that I didn't go into enough detail about bipolar. But that's because I hadn't fully accepted it myself. I wasn't sure if that's what I was. You know, you hear a lot about doctors misdiagnosing you, and I was afraid of that label. I was afraid that people would think I was crazy or didn't want to meet with you know. So there was a stigma attached to bipolar that was a lot more severe than, let's say, depression. It was easier for people to understand. You, you worked yourself a bit, you know, and now you're burned out and you have, you're anxious and you're stressed. They, it's like they could relate to that. But as soon as you brought bipolar into it, you saw this kind of fear and skepticism and they looked at you a little different. That's how I thought anyway. It's taken me actually 20 years to become open with my bipolar. And it's also because for... You know, I would say from 2010 to 2019, I didn't really have any episodes. And I, I thought that I'd worked my way through that and that I wasn't bipolar anymore. But in November 2019, which isn't that long ago, 
I had the most severe manic episode I've ever had. All the stress that I was going through uh, just kind of accumulated into a, a severe manic phase. And my friends and family noticed that I was speaking faster, I had more of a temper, I was losing touch with reality. And when I was painting, I was euphoric and I was up three days straight and I had all this energy, it was just crazy. And then after that manic episode, which lasted only three, four days, uh, I went into a severe crash landing that sort of landed almost in this um, corona madness, you know, so, uh, I, I'm really just sort of coming out of this now, been fighting that down, I mean, that down period for like six months where it's been so hard. Uh, so that's sort of, what do you call it? Uh, um, how do you say that word in English? Uh, that summarizes it yeah, a yeah. little bit for me. And you've already touched on this, but I guess... Yeah. Just to tell us generally what life is like with depression. I mean, how, what coping mechanisms do you use to, uh, to get through those difficult times? That's a very good question. Sometimes it's all about endurance. It's just taking things as it comes and not have too much pressure on yourself. I mean, when you're depressed, uh, it, it, it's hard to fight. I mean, that, I mean, you just, there's no energy. You're so exhausted. So it becomes a lot about endurance, but I, I paint a lot. I write when I can. It's sometimes hard, but going for walks in the woods and uh, being creative, uh, painting has always been my coping mechanism, uh, which is, explains the title of my book, you know, Discovering Art Through Depression. Uh, so I paint my emotions. I don't paint what I see or draw or do uh, etchings or whatever I do. I start with a blank canvas and whatever I feel comes out. That cathartic element of painting is extremely important to me. So uh, it's not like I sat down and decided I'm going to have a career as an artist. That never happened to me. I had to do something creative to deal with my illness and my professional trait, you know, where I have exhibits and things like that has just evolved naturally around that. But I don't know what I would do without art or you know, I would be frustrated beyond belief. <laughs> there have been a few reports commissioned to show that there is a link between art engagement and well-being. And it's obviously good for you to be creative, whether that's singing or drawing or painting or writing. I just wondered, is that pretty much common knowledge where you are in Norway, that obviously being creative is good for you? I would say yes. But as far as the form of treatment, I would say that it's still in very early stages. Um, whenever I've been hospitalized or things like that it's not been very professional they just basically create give you a space if you want to be creative but there's really no guidance from a professional therapist in this so this idea of art therapy is uh, really evolving and I teach students too in small groups in my studio and I've often wondered if what I do is art therapy but the difference between art therapy and being a professional artist is art therapy is not about performance it's not about you know, doing something great. It's all about getting what's inside out. You don't evaluate that this was technically good or try to become better technically as an artist. So that's the difference is uh, I have a professional view of my art, but this, this idea of a treatment where you just, you know, whatever through color or putting something on the floor or using natural materials or whatever you need to do to get your emotions out, that's becoming probably more common idea you know in treatment but still in i mean it's still early i think 
Yeah, and I guess that's pretty much the same in the UK as well. So social prescribing um, is mm. quite a new concept, definitely in the UK, where doctors are recommending people get involved in local creative uh, groups as a way of helping them um, with their general well-being. But I, but I guess it's quite a new concept, uh, social prescribing. And it could have a social element too. Um, yeah. Some depressed people isolate themselves. It's fairly common especially in the older population. So to create groups where they're creative together, uh, I think has some of that too, that they need to be a little bit interactive and social with other people. And, um, but you know, in general, being creative is something you do alone. If you write songs or if you sing, you, know, you wanna share it eventually with somebody, but the creative process for me is a very personal and lonely thing, which isn't negative, it's just how it is. It's hard for me to be creative around other people. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I just wonder if we could go back to just talking a bit more about your bipolar disorder in terms of how does that affect you in terms of how does that affect your relationships with family and friends? That's a tough one for me because there's a lot of guilt involved. You know, it's hard to be married to someone who is uh, bipolar, I think. We don't see it ourselves. I never know. It's not like I say, oh, now I'm manic. <laughs> or now I'm severely depressed, I just kind of deal with it. But people around you, they see that. Um, it could be that you're very temperamental in certain stages, you're really frustrated. Small, small things become blown up into big things. Stress around you, you're very susceptible to other people's energies. And so, um, and you tend to isolate yourself. For me, I, I, I'm up all night, I sleep in the day a lot, uh, which is of course hard on a relationship. It's almost like you would have to sit down and talk to my wife about that, <laughs> uh, but, but that, it, it is tough. And I see that a lot of people with, with this diagnosis don't do well in relationships over time. It could be misunderstood as egoistic. No. Uh, but there's a lot of protecting yourself going on and then dealing with your anxiety. It's really hard to think about other people. You're so absorbed in your own pain and what's going on. You're, this endurance that I talked about that they really need to understand and give you space uh, certain times. But then there's, of course, um, the worry that comes because when you become so severely depressed, there's things like suicidal thoughts. And when those things are incorporated into it, those who are close to you can become worried. You may need help and maybe you're not seeking help. So it's a tough one. You talked about the, the stigma attached to bipolar disorder earlier. Obviously, the media has a big role to play in kind of breaking down and demystifying some of these conditions. Is that an issue in Norway? I don't think it's discussed very much. We know, for instance, Hollywood, how they portray bipolar. And that was one of the reasons why I was reluctant to accept this diagnosis is because I identified with, let's say, the, the film by Richard Gere, where he, think, he, he walks in front of an orchestra and wants to conduct. He gets up on a building and thinks he can fly. And that was so drastic for me. I didn't want people to think of me that way. I felt that I was aware of what's going on. And I never had psychosis like that. I would say until November, where I was really out of there. I, I never listened to rap music, for instance, but during these three, four days where I was severely manic, I was listening to rap full blast and I was in the music and I was feeling everything so strongly. So things that are out of character like that, when that starts to really hit, you know, 
and in your friends say, or family, we think you're in a manic phase now. We can hear it in the way you're talking, how you're being. It's out of character. You might get ideas, grandiose ideas. If you're going to throw a party, you want to have a party for 300 people. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But you do get a lot of good stuff done. Yeah. <laughs> in those, I mean, I, I, I drew like mad. I was, and it wasn't like I was drawing just like calmly. I was like, and I made like 15 drawings a day. And I was just, everything I did was just, Fantastic, I thought, you know, and so <laughs> you can laugh about it, but um, you, back to your original question, I think there's still a lot of skepticism and people don't really understand it and they're afraid of it. And I'm, I'm terrified of when there's things in the media when they talk about schizophrenia or bipolar in one category, for instance, somebody might be schizophrenic or psychotic and they go out and stab some people, you know, think events like that, that happen in society. That's when I get scared. Maybe they're going to think of me that way, yeah. that I'm dangerous or that I'm a threat to them when, I, you know, and so it's really hard to talk about. Can you tell us about, so you founded Twitter art exhibit. Can you tell us what that is and how you, ca you came about with the idea? Yeah, I started that 11 years ago. And so it's been going for quite some time. And in the early days, you know, uh, when social media just arrived, we were a close-knit community on Twitter where we supported each other from all over the world. So artists are often lonely. They're sitting in their own corner somehow. And through social media, this whole new world opened up where we could share our work, get support and, and strengthen each other. And I eventually felt this need to want to do things with these other artists from all over the world. And we discussed that uh, online. Uh, what can we do? I thought about having an exi actual exhibit somewhere, but sending work was costly. What do we do with the paintings that are not sold? And I couldn't deal with that cost. And so then I got this idea that a postcard doesn't cost much to send. What happened was there was also an article in my local newspaper that uh, my local library needed funding for children's books that cut all the funding. Right. So I thought that was awful. And then I put these two things together. And so I went to my library and I said, if I get my artist friends to send hand painted postcards and we put them up in the library uh, and then we sell them, we can raise money for your children's books. And that was a, a lot of work, but a huge success. And I think we got like 260 cards from 24 countries and, I made little labels with their Twitter handle. And so those who bought the cards could contact the artists. And uh, we did that kind of show together and everybody donated work for charity. So huge, good feel. And um, we were able to raise money to buy 221 new children's books through that. And so from that concept, it grew. Uh, I did it again in 2012 for our lo local women's shelter who also needed funding. And we got, 150 more cards than the previous time. And then in uh, 2013, I was contacted by a professional curator in Los Angeles who said, this is such a great idea. We see all the activity online and I'd like to do this in my city, you know, use your concept in your name, but raise funds for my, a charity here. And that's how it grew into an organization. And last year we had, you know, over a thousand artists from 64 countries and we did that in Edinburgh, uh, in Scotland. We raised like 20,000 pounds. So it's, it's grown and it's great. It gives you a huge network of artists from all over the world. And we do once a year. And all you need to do is just paint something, whatever you like. As long as it's original and hand-signed, you can draw or make an etching or you can paint watercolor or oil on a little board or whatever you want to do. And then you send it off in an envelope and we do the rest and sell it for charity. 
That's amazing. For anyone wanting to find out more, what what's the Twitter handle again? It, it's a Twitter article. Well, it, it, we had to spell it a little different, so we didn't want Twitter. So it's like T W I T R art exhibit, Twitter art exhibit, but spelled not like Twitter. <laughs> You'll find it. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I just wanted to talk a bit more about your book, I'll Run Till the Sun Goes Down. So as you say, it's a memoir about depression and discovering art. Just tell us a bit about how you came to, to write it. Well, it was a huge project. It took me 15 years from that I started writing it to that it was actually published. So I spent, I think, 12, 13 years writing and editing. And I wrote as things were happening, you know, so it's very hands-on. It's just about the entire process of burnout into depression, into clinical depression, and then discovering art and uh, evolving as an artist and uh, therapy and medications and hospitalizations and all of this stuff, everything that happened from 2000 to 2010. So uh, it was published in America through a U.S. publisher. So it's written in English. It's available on Amazon and Kindle if anyone's interested so i don't know what else to say it's just my story it's just what happened not everyone can write a book i guess and i get yet you were able to just put pen to paper and talk about your your personal experiences of, of depression well writing and painting are two very different processes uh, words uh, are very specific and when you write about your own life um, it can be very difficult. So it takes more time, a different kind of thinking. And that's why it takes me so long, because there are long, long periods where I can't really focus uh, on writing. I can, when I, when I paint, I can just let my mind go. And I don't, it's almost like I do it on autopilot. I don't think, but when I write, I really got to think. So it's a long process for me. But with words, you are able to say things without being misunderstood. It was like, I wanted to say it my way. I didn't want my doctors and hospitalizations and everything to define me. I wanted to tell my story and also for family and, you know, my kids and friends. If they really want to know what happened and how I ended up where I was, where I am, they could read that. And it's all there. And each chapter has a journal entry as a start. So it's very hands on, you know, what actually was what I felt and what was, was happening. And the book also has all my drawings and paintings in association to the story and also the artwork that inspired me. So there's over 40 pictures in the book uh, and many from Van Gogh, Van Gogh and uh, Munch and uh, Chagall and artists that inspired me. But from an art perspective, it might be interesting that way. Why do you think raising awareness of depression is, is so important? I think raising awareness about anything that's difficult in life is important. It's not like my situation is any more difficult than someone who is autistic or some, you know, Black Lives Matter, what's going on, raising awareness about racism or anything is important. The more we understand about something, the less we judge. But this goes back to my writing, too, is I wanted to promote empathy and understanding. And the more we understand something, the more we can also help other people who are in that situation. If we tell it like it is, it creates empathy both within those who struggle, that they feel less alone, and also empathy in their loved ones and those who are around them, that maybe they're more patient and understanding when they understand 
when they realize how difficult this is. What is mental health provision like in, in Norway, where you live? I know you touched on it earlier a little bit. In general, I think it's really good, but they're cutting funding for a lot of things more and more. Um, if you need to be hospitalized, for instance, when I first entered the health system in that regard, you know, 2000, 2001, you could stay at the hospital for maybe six weeks to two months if you needed help. Now it's like a two week cap and it's more like a revolving door, which, and there's long waiting lists to get into getting help. It takes too long to get the help that you need in general. That's a challenge that I'm working hard uh, to, to raise awareness about what's going on in society. But I would say as far as accepting depression as an illness, uh, that's come quite far. People don't question that anymore, that that's just something you're imagining. <laughs> but there's still a lot of attitudes like get yourself together, just get a job. You know, everybody goes through difficult things. You know, there's all of these stigmas that always goes on. And people constantly need to be reminded not to judge. Yeah, no, absolutely. I know that um, I did read an article recently that mental health provision in the UK was, was probably one of the worst in Europe, to be honest, uh, that I, an article that I read last year. So there's a, a lot of work to be done in, in that area. I mean, I just I've been working in Scotland a lot for the last three years. And last year I got an artist in residency up in the Highlands. A place called Inveru, uh Garden and Estate through National Trust of Scotland. And I got a scholarship to be there and work. And I also gave a lot of speeches up in the Highlands uh, for people. And I saw that there's a huge need to, to talk uh, about these things and that a lot of people didn't want to even host events because they thought it was too, too uh, difficult or people wouldn't come and, you know, all of these kinds of things. So that I think especially in Scotland, there is a huge need um, to open up and talk uh, about these things, just, yeah. just being open about it. But there, I mean, if you think about it, almost everybody knows someone that they're close to who uh, is struggling with something within mental health. They might have a child or a brother or a sister or a father or mother or spouse, and, um, but they don't talk about it uh, because they feel a kind of defeat. Uh, you saw that in Scotland a lot, especially men. I feel a big that I have a huge role to, you know, that it's not weakness yeah. to admit that you and, and a lot of men, especially, they think that they will be looked upon as weak yeah. uh, if they say that. So they carry that inside of themselves. So a lot of people came to me in the Highlands one on one. They, they may not even show up at the event, but they, they seek me out after and ask who have a cup of coffee or something. And then they wanted to talk. Yeah. But they were afraid to do it in public. They were afraid to sh that other people would see that they really struggled. But they struggled bad. There's a huge need. Absolutely. And there is, as you say, there is that attitude sometimes, unfortunately, where people are told to man up and that, that mm. men shouldn't talk about mental health and it's a sign of weakness and as you say that needs to be addressed and obviously we talked about the fact that we're in lockdown right now as we're, as we're recording this podcast due to obviously COVID-19 unemployment rates are, are going up and people are really going to be impacted across the world in terms of financially but also from a long-term mental health point of view I just wondered what your thoughts were around that I mean do you think, it, think that's something that we, should, we need to worry about in terms of how that's going to impact people's mental health absolutely we're all vulnerable right now and there are several things that are challenging uh, relationships can be a huge issue that there's a lot of stress and tension within a small space that you don't they feel like you're choking in your own home and you get on each other's nerves um, 
Structure is another thing that's really important, um, especially to bipolar. When, when you lose your structure, you can't go and talk to a doctor. You can't talk to friends in person. You can't hug someone. You know, things like that affects you. Not only those who are sick mentally, but anybody. Uh, stress is not good uh, as far as mental health. And when you start getting the symptoms, um, that things that you used to love, you don't love anymore, you struggle to sleep, you worry constantly about things, and finances is a huge part of this that's affected by COVID. People are laid off work, they worry about how they're gonna pay their bills, they lay up at night thinking about these things. We should be aware of this, and um, you know, if you're a spouse and you notice this in your partner, for instance, that's something maybe you should talk about, and um, how do you get help these days? There, there's a lot of, Sources on resources online. There's doctors who's up or therapists who are offering free sessions online. Organizations working this way. But if people are not aware of it, they don't know where to go to get help. And with men, men and women, what I worry about is the suicide risk of people feeling things are hopeless. And interacting and talking to others when you're in that state is extremely important. If you keep things inside and you're starting to get suicidal or things like that, you really need to get help. Yeah. Reach out. Absolutely. And again, um, there's a bit of repetition in this question, but I just wondered if you could perhaps sum up and for anyone listening that perhaps um, is struggling with their own mental health or maybe they're worried about the, the stigma surrounding mental health or they don't want to be labeled with anything. And obviously we talked about that earlier. I just wonder what you would say to anyone listening that was perhaps really sort of not sure where to go after listening to this podcast and, and worried about their own mental health. There are genuinely kind people in the world who wants to help you. And even though you think they don't exist, maybe you're afraid that someone will label you and come with these comments that you need to man up and you need to get your act together and all these things. If that's happened to you and that's discouraged you from seeking help, um, because there's usually some kind of bad experience like that, where they think, oh, they don't understand me. But there are people who do. You just need to find them. And only you can do that. People can't read your mind. But there are other things you can do if you don't want to talk to people. What I do is I go for a lot of long walks. And now we are able to do that. I would say walking is my meditation. It really helps me to get out in the woods or go for a walk anywhere. Even if it's at night, if you're laying in bed and you're anxious and you're stressed, Put on your shoes and get out and walk. Listen to some music, anything. Do something creative. Pick up a piece of paper and start drawing or start writing a poem or a song. Sing, dance. Sounds maybe cliche, but as far as, you know, it depends where they're at, at the stage. You know, if they're suicidal, for instance, that there is no doubt that they need to get help. You know, and you need to tell someone to tell your partner, tell a close friend that you are close to what's going on so that you can get help. It's, there's no defeat in admitting that you're in a vulnerable place. And if you don't engage with other people in that state, it could be disastrous. Absolutely. Well, well, David, thank you so much for speaking to us today. I really appreciate your time and, and your honesty and your humility in, 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 in talking about uh, these issues. So I really appreciate that. I don't, I don't want to cut you off, but I didn't want to leave this as the responsibility lies on the patient, so to speak. Sure, sure. Uh, there, there's always that element that we need to take 
charge of our own life. But the, you know, we need to, as as fellow human beings, we need to also realize that you know, if if you even suspect that one of your friends or someone that you love or even just know are alone and struggling, send them a text, uh, call them, reach out to them and just ask how they're doing and try to be empathetic and to listen, not give advice, just listen to them. That That is so important because a lot of people that struggle, they don't, they don't know what to do. They're in a hopeless place. So I don't want it to, to end on that the responsibility was solely on the person suffering. That's a really good yeah. point. And as you said, sometimes you, you can, just being there for someone and just listen with no particular agenda and you don't have to offer advice you can just be there and listen it really does help I mean, people are afraid that maybe they'll butt in and maybe they'll say something that offend them but there's nobody who's going to be offended by saying i was just thinking about you today i wonder how you're doing nobody's going to get angry for getting a question like that that someone cares about you so don't be afraid to, to do that definitely yeah. well, but again, don't give advice don't say you got to do this you got to do that just listen to them, you know? Absolutely. And even if after talking to them, you sense this is pretty bad, you may need to connect them to a health professional or an organization that, that can reach out to them in terms. Yeah. Absolutely. That's invaluable advice. Thank you. And what we'll do is we'll put some links on the podcast description to some uh, some organizations that you can approach if you need to uh, to reach out. But obviously, you know, as David was saying, don't don't suffer in silence. And we need it's good to, to talk about whatever you're going through. And, 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 and together we can you know try and break down some of the stigmas that still exist out there. And yeah, so, uh, you know, obviously this is a, a really important subject. You know, we want to we want to create an environment where it's safe for people to, to talk openly uh, if they're struggling really really interesting to speak with you today david I, I appreciate your honesty about your own personal journey that you've been on and this is what makes a podcast so um interesting really because they're authentic they're real they're not they're not polished like you know often sometimes radio programs that might be quite edited and curated where you can tell that you're speaking from the heart and i think uh, audiences can really engage with that so um yeah really appreciate your time thank you very much for having me no worries thank you david <laughs>